In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy. And blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again. Like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it's felled, the holy seed is its stump. I think all of us know how important the heart is, the human heart, not just the physical heart, but the heart that makes up who you are is to no matter what it is that you're doing. So whether you're in a relationship or whether you're thinking about athletics, we know that the heart is critical. Uh, You've all seen a, a relationship where you have a guy who's heart isn't in it or the girl isn't in it. And and in that relationship, we know that when that heart is not there, uh, the relationship looks like something very sad. Uh, The same thing happens with athletics, doesn't it? Uh, You've seen somebody whose heart has given up on a game and their countenance drops and they're just not quite in the game like they ought to be. Well, I think the same thing goes true with God and our relationship with God. In fact, this morning we're going to be thinking about uh, Isaiah who has this incredible vision of the Lord. He comes before God. And what we know in context is this picks up on the backside of Isaiah 5 where we've been told that the people of God have not had a heart for God. They have not been devoted to Him. Their heart has not been in their religion. And and here in in the midst of this vision, Isaiah is confronted with the reality of where he stands before God and where his heart has been. And that's what we're going to be thinking about this morning as we're back in our Looking at Jesus series in the book of Isaiah. Uh, Here what we have seen so far is that uh, Isaiah is a prophet who is living in the days of Uzziah, a great king who had 52 years of prosperous reign over Israel, over Judah. And and many of those years were good years, years of prosperity. Uh, We know uh, towards the end that Uzziah sinned against God uh, and and was struck with leprosy and he was unclean, but for much of his reign, he was considered to be a king who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. What we're going to see today is that God gives Isaiah a vision of himself. And I think that what we're going to see is 
is that in chapter 5, verses 18 to 19, there were those who were drawing iniquity with cords of falsehood or lies. They were men of, of unclean lips. Uh, and they were mocking Isaiah's prophecy that, that God was a God of justice. And as he said that, uh, that God was going to draw near in justice and righteousness. You'll remember that those, those groups in, 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 of unclean lips in Isaiah 5 were crying out what? Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near. And let it come that we may know it. In other words, they were not fearful amidst their sin of the Holy God that was about to draw near. Well, in Isaiah 6, as this earthly king dies amidst their prosperity and peace, the prophet Isaiah receives a vision of another king, of his heavenly king, who is exalted with his glory pouring out into all of creation. That same holy king that we're going to be look at, looking at today, we're going to see two things about him. Uh, that same holy king who saves those who confess will also harden those who suppress. And that's what we're going to be thinking about this morning. If you're taking notes, write that down. Uh, the same holy king who saves those who confess, hardens those who suppress. And we'll see that first in verses 1-4, to four, where we see the holy king is really devoted to justice. He is really devoted to justice, this holy king. Now look with me again in your copy of God's Word, and we'll see that. In Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, as we read from there again, beginning in verse 1. Isaiah chapter 6. Here's what the Word of the Lord says. In the year of King Uzziah that he died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, they covered, he covered his face. And with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. What a vision. You know, here Isaiah sees a heavenly king as his earthly king dies. And in this year, the year that the great earthly king Uzziah died, what we have is God peeling back the veil that separated man from God so that Isaiah could get a, a glimpse of the spiritual world that had been hidden from his eyes and so that he could see the greater heavenly king in the temple exalted above every earthly authority. What a vision. And he beholds in that vision God sitting upon His throne which is in heaven. His feet in this vision are actually resting on the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place in the temple on earth. That was considered to be the footstool of God where God met with His people. And not only that, what we find is, is that this is the place on this footstool where God would make an annual sacrifice. He would have an annual sacrifice made to Him to bring atonement between Him and His people. Now, what's fascinating, you'll notice that He had a robe. And the, the length of a robe of a king spoke to His glory. You'll notice that this robe actually filled the temple. Now that word for temple is interesting. It's not just any word for temple. It speaks of a specific place in the temple, the outer courts. 
Just think about this. The temple, the outer courts. As you probably know, God's temple looked a lot like the Garden of Eden, which was also located on a a mountain. And God's people met with God in the most holy place, much like Adam and Eve met with God in the Garden of Eden. Now, the outer courts reflect the world outside of the garden. So God's robe, catch this, filling the outer courts is actually picturing God's glorious presence flooding down from his throne into the whole earth such that the whole earth is full of his glory. Do you see it? And above God are the seraphim, uh, really a a plural word for seraphs, uh, winged snake creatures that were often uh, pictured with kings. They would have them on their thrones and tombs and that kind of thing. Uh, They were a picture of royalty. But here what we have is a a seraph or seraphim, multiple of these around them with these six wings. And with two, they were constantly in flight, constantly in motion to do the bidding of the Lord. And with two, we are told that they actually held them over their eyes to cover them from looking at God. Why? They were covering the eyes, not the ears, because they were fully devoted to doing whatever the Word of God said. And with two, they covered their feet. And we don't know why, but it it seems like the reason they covered their feet is a picture of the fact that their ways would only be the ways that the Lord sent them upon. It was not for them to set their courses. It was for God. And God did this with these angels. What What a vision. And these people of unclean lips in Isaiah that we just read about in Isaiah 5, who mockingly dared the transcendent Holy One of Israel to draw near in justice, are here, we find Isaiah coming before that very God. He has come. He has heard them. He has come. He is present before them. But catch this. What we find is the Holy, Holy, Holy God is devoted and present. That Holy, Holy, Holy God that seems so far off is actually devoted and present. Catch this. We find in this text that God is not just holy. The the seraphs are actually singing back and forth, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Now in Hebrew, uh, repeating a word actually intensifies it. You'll remember in the book of Jonah when Jonah says they feared fearing, that it, it speaks of the fact that they were terrified before God. Well, nowhere else in the Bible do we have a word repeated three times other than in Revelation, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's the only word that's, that's repeated three times which creates this unique kind of super superlative describing God. In other words, God is here intensely holy. The holy God hasn't just shown up. The holy, holy, holy God has come and He is standing before them to make Himself known. But what is holiness? You know, great men have uh, described it in in different ways. I love uh, uh, men like R.C. Sproul and Stephen Charnock. Um, They have historically defined holiness as transcendence and and moral purity. And, And to be sure, we see in this very text that God is transcendent. I don't know any of you who have friends who are CEOs of company who when they go to work, they expect these flying, you know, serpent things to like be around their chair when they're at work. Anybody? I don't. I mean, like, that's an otherworldly kind of leadership, right? But not only that, we see that in Scripture, God is clearly morally pure. That's absolutely true. With Him, there is no darkness at all. He is a God who is unlike anyone that we know. 
But I'm increasingly convinced by Peter Gentry, John Mead, and others that one of holiness's secondary meanings should actually be more primary. Here's what I mean. I believe that the way that we understand words is actually in the context of where we find them in the Bible and how those words relate with other words. So when I read about holiness in Exodus 3 and 19 and elsewhere, it seems that, that holiness actually seems to emphasize holiness as consecration and devotion and eminence being near to us instead of transcendence and moral purity. Not that those ideas aren't together in this text. Now, I know that this isn't really revolutionary. It might sound revolutionary that I'm saying that actually holiness means that, uh, that God is devoted and that we are devoted to Him, or that holiness means that God is drawing near rather than showing how far away He is. It's not really revolutionary because you'll find that very definition, consecration, as a meaning if you look up that word in either the Hebrew or the Greek. It, it's part of what it means. But here's why I think holiness speaks of devotion and presence. Just a few quick reasons. Did you notice here that holiness actually accompanies not transcendence, but eminence? Like God drawing near uniquely to His people. They've just been calling for God to come on and draw near. And here He is, visible high and lifted up before them. Now what fits better with the whole earth being filled with His glory? Is it the absence and transcendence of God? Or is it the unique manifestation of His presence coming before them? And God appearing before uh, and speaking to Isaiah. Isn't this a unique representation of God communicating with His people? I mean, the whole point of this text is that God draws near to His people. And Isaiah 5 demonstrated sin for sure. That, that, That His people were not morally pure. But here, God is about to show that His holy people have not been devoted to obeying Him from the heart. See, he's not just worried about their hands, but their heart's devotion to him. And when God shows up and he removes that veil, he reveals that they are without excuse for not seeing his glory. The whole earth is full of his glorious presence. In other words, Judah's problem isn't a lack of God's glorious presence to inspire them. We are never at a lack as humans for the glorious presence of God all around us. Our problem is not the existence or the presence of the glory of God. Our problem is our hearts not being able to actually see it. And to be honest with you, if we were actually to fully graze upon the glory of God that is clearly before us, except for our broken minds, if that veil were rent back and we were able to see it, I don't know that we could handle it. See, we are full. This world that has been created by God is full of the glorious presence of God. But here in this text... What we find is is that Judah's problem isn't a lack of God's glorious presence to inspire them. Their problem is this, you'll find, that they are blind and deaf and hard-hearted. Similarly, in Exodus 3, you'll remember that Moses doesn't remove his sandals because the holy ground is more morally pure or obedient to God than other ground, right? No, it's, it's, it's holy ground before God because it's been devoted as a place where God draws near to His people and specifically Moses. So as Peter Gentry says, the holy ground is not the place of distance or radical separation, but of meeting and of presence, the meeting of God and man. Now, the same way, you'll notice that in the temple, the way that it's created, you have the holy place and then you have the most holy place. 
Let me just ask you a question to think about. Where do you get closer to God? In the holy place or the most holy place? The most holy place. That's where you draw as near to God as you possibly get. Where God meets with His people. Not only that, who is it that is allowed to go into the most holy place? Is it people who are more devoted to God or less devoted to God with their lives? More devoted. See, here what we find is, is that in verse 3, I believe we find a summation of verses 1 to 2, so that the train of the robe filling the outer courts of the earth is actually a picture of the reality that the whole entire earth is full of His glorious presence. It's, never, it's not seen equally in all places, but it is seen truly in all places. And even the shaking of the foundations and smoke that covers Isaiah's eyes in verse 4 depict common experiences of men who approach God's presence like Moses on Mount Sinai. But what in context is God devoted to? Well, here's what I believe. I believe if we see Isaiah 6 in light of Isaiah 5, he is devoted to the main point of that chapter, which we read last week in verses 15 to 16. It's this, God is devoted, devoted, devoted to exalting himself in justice and righteousness. He is absolutely devoted to it. So the first five books of the Bible define that justice and righteousness for us, for Israel here. So if you're wondering, what is justice and righteousness? What is this that he's devoted to? Well, the first five books of the Bible tell us. And if you're wondering what this is, catch this. God says there that his devotion to being exalted in justice and righteousness hear me, this is good, it's all about love. You might say, well, he just snuck love in here. We were talking about justice and righteousness. Let me explain what I mean. You'll notice that Deuteronomy and Jesus himself go to summarize the, the, the righteous and just standard of God in all of the Old Testament. And you know what he says it is? Here it is. Let me give you the short version, the abridged version of the Bible. If you don't have time to read the rest of it right now, you can go back and do that later. It's this, love God with everything that's in you. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's what God's righteousness and justice look like when they are played out in real time. And God says, catch this, I am absolutely committed. I am devoted to seeing that just right standing. The reason that I have created humanity being played out in the people that bear my name. And so that's exactly what we find here in our text. God is completely devoted to that. And catch this. Do you see how devotion and God's love and justice meet? So here's the bigger moral problem, or the bigger, <clears throat> the bigger problem of moral sin. It's not just what you do, it's that your heart is far from God. That's God's concern. He says, if I have your heart, I'll have your life. If I don't have your life, and it says that I don't really have your heart. Now please don't miss this. There is an upward and an outward aspect to devotion to God that centers on loving God and others. Let me say that again. There is an an upward and an outward aspect to devotion to God, and it centers on loving God and others. Now, I think devotionals uh, are really important. We need to have our private, quiet times in the Word. We need to spend time in prayer. These are good things that stir up our heart towards God. Uh, We cannot serve a God that we do not know. So let me just encourage you, if you're not spending daily time in the Bible, daily time in prayer, speaking with your Father, uh, then you are neglecting one of the most important means of grace in your life. You need to be in the Word constantly. We need daily time in the Word in prayer. 
mean, how can you grow in loving devotion to someone that you don't know? And how can you know God if you are not devoted to hearing what He has said? I mean, just think about it. How many of you guys have wives that actually like to talk to you? Anybody? All right, some of you, you're just lying. How many of you have wives who get upset if you don't talk to them? How many of you guys struggle with that? We can talk about that later. But the point is that if you're in a relationship, there's this expectation that we are talking and relating. Now, am I relating to get something? No, I'm, I'm relating to build a relationship with my wife of love so that I know her and she knows me and our love grows. So how can you actually relate with God if you don't ever listen to His voice and His voice comes through His very Word? And not only that, are you speaking back to Him? Are you talking to your God? Do you wonder why you feel far from God and you have not read your Bible in three weeks and you haven't prayed in four or five? Like, let me just say, the, the less you talk to God, the less you will feel devoted to Him. The less you read His Word, the less you will feel devoted to Him. And if you're wondering, like, man, I would love to pray. I don't know how to. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. Uh, our pastoral prayers are a great place to listen to the kinds of things that you ought to pray for. We pray for different things each week. Those things are things the Bible tells us to pray for. So pray for those things. Another great way to get involved in prayer, if you're not, is praying for the church. We have a membership directory. You can pray for the specific members of the church. I can't tell you what a joy it is to have folks who I hear from in our congregation who say, I just met someone who's been praying for me for a few weeks and they'd never met me just because I was in the membership directory. Great way to pray, great way to be devoted to God. But catch this. It's not just about your upward relationship with God. That's not all that God calls for in His just and righteous, loving uh, kindness that He calls us towards. Catch this. Your outward relationships with other people, they might say just as much or more about your holiness than your your devotion to God. Let, Let me say that again. Your outward relationships with other people might say just as much or more about your holiness or devotion to God. In fact, have you ever noticed that six of the Ten Commandments and the Ten Commandments are focused on how people treat other people? Like, yeah, if you keep God's law, it means you're going to treat people better. You're going to treat others in the way that looks like God, blessing them, loving them. Now, just think about that. Think about God. God cares about things like how kids honor their parents. God cares about that. If you're a kid, like you don't honor your parents just because like you know you're supposed to. You you, you do it because you know God says so and He made you and it's good for you. And and God not only cares about men loving their wives. He does, brothers. He also cares about the way that you look at other men's wives. You're not to covet other wives. God not only cares about that, He not only cares about that, your, your wife, He cares about your stuff. He cares about the stuff that you have. But not just the stuff that you have. He cares about how you look at other people's stuff. You're not to covet what other people have. Just think about that. Do you see how God's holiness, His devotion to justice connects with the way that we love others? God cares about our love for others. That's why the Apostle John writes in 1 John 2, 4-5 this. 1 John 2, 4-5 Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him, but catch this, but whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. And that love absolutely has to do with how we treat one another. Right living and love go hand in hand. And at its heart, 
Moral purity is a question of devotion to loving God and one another. And the New Testament, hear me, says that that love for one another is actually expressed firstly, not only, but firstly in relationships that we have in the committed relationship of a local church. That's where we see the love of God on display in such a way that outsiders looking in are going, I know that those are disciples of Jesus. But there's another thing that we see here. Notice this. Second, God saves and sends those confessing sin. God saves and sends those confessing sins. Now don't miss this. In the shadow of His holy God, Isaiah's prophetic woe in verse 5 is a recognition that he's a sinner before a God who is devoted to exalting himself in justice. He is, he is absolutely uh, devoted to this God. And, and notice what he says, whom this God who is devoted to his justice. Notice what he says in verse 5. In verse 5 he says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people who are of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He, he is lost or, or ruined, maybe even silent, like somebody would have been after a disaster or a funeral. Why? Why is God's presence disastrous for Isaiah? It's because he's part of the people of unclean lips that he spoke six woes against in chapter 5. He accepted unclean speech in a society and he didn't seek to correct it and might have even been part of it. But don't miss this. Never does Isaiah see himself so clearly as he does at the throne of God. When he sees the King, the Lord of hosts. And notice what Isaiah doesn't say here. When he comes before the King and he sees himself as clearly as he's ever seen himself, when the Holy God who's devoted to His justice and righteousness, notice that Isaiah doesn't say, man, it's a good thing that nobody's perfect at all, right God? I mean, it's good that we all have our sin and stuff, right? <laughs> I mean, I'm just like the rest of them, and they're kind of worse than me. Is that the way that Isaiah talks before God when he comes before Him? No. When the Holy God who is devoted, devoted, devoted to being exalted in justice or, or setting things right, and, and He knows that He is wrong, there is nowhere for Him to hide. You see, He doesn't run and try to hide His sin with excuses. He doesn't try to hide His sin with saying, well, it's not as bad as that guy. He doesn't do any of that. No, He doesn't hide. Instead, notice that He confesses. That's what we have to do when we truly see God in ourselves. We don't hide our sin. We confess our sin. Two things that we need to know about confession. Two things that it does. Catch this. Don't miss this. One, it affirms God's standards are right and just. When you are confessing your sin, you're not just saying something about yourself. You're saying something about your good God. That He is just. That His standards are right. And you are affirming that. That's the foundation of your confession. But there's a second thing that you see there in your, uh, in your uh, confession, and that's this, that we are confessing that we intentionally disobeyed it. That we disobeyed it. We knew what was right, we saw it, and yet we, we did the wrong thing anyway. And we know that denying sin or downplaying it, we know what it will do. See, don't miss God's response 
to Isaiah's confession. It is a great response. You don't want to hide your sin. You want to deal with it. And confession is the way to do it. And notice what happens when Isaiah confesses it in verses 6 to 8. First, God saves Isaiah atoning for his sins. Did you, did you see that? Now notice in verses 6 to 7 what happens. Look there with me. Isaiah 6, 6 to 7. He tells us exactly what he does. He says... In verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hands a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the, from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And what a, what a good message for Isaiah. You'll notice here, there's a beautiful picture of God providing for His people. Think about this. What was it that Isaiah confessed? Wasn't it that he was a man of unclean lips? That he was one of those from Isaiah 5 who, who were using speech uncleanly and they were unclean before God? Don't miss this. Don't miss God's beautiful response meeting Isaiah at the exact point of his confessed need. And, and God touched those same lips with a coal from His holy altar drew near to him with that coal from his holy altar and this altar was the place where the holy god accepted and was satisfied by blood sacrifice for the sins of his people as alec moyer says this this altar that was in the temple represents substitutionary sacrifice that brings atonement propitiation like we talked about last week satisfaction forgiveness cleansing and reconciliation. And all of those words about the nature of what His sacrifice does is actually encapsulated in this little symbolic live coal. All of that in this little image. The substitutionary sacrifice of God. Uh, this is really uh, what I would call and what theologians call an abbreviated version of penal substitutionary atonement. I know that's a big phrase. I'm sorry for using it. It's important though and it's good. Here's why. It perfectly encapsulates what God has done for us. Think about this. Atonement means a price has been paid to a just judge to restore relationship. Someone has, has done something that they are guilty of. A price has to be paid to make things right. Now in the Old Testament, the, the price to be made when you sinned against God was a sacrificial animal to pay the penalty, penal substitution, the penalty for sins. But that only foreshadowed those sacrifices, the greater sacrifice that was to come when Jesus, who is the Christ, the Messiah, would come and lay down His life on the cross to pay our penalty in full once for all by laying down His life in our place to purchase atonement or oneness, at oneness with God, reconciliation with Him because He is a just God and needed to be satisfied. Don't miss this. I think this is so important. You know, I think that we might have been giving a really quick definition for mercy that might not fully be giving God the glory that He deserves. Now, all of you have probably heard this definition before, right? What is mercy? Come on, it's okay, you can participate right now. Just now. Not receiving, what? The punishment you deserve, right? Not receiving the punishment you deserve. And that's a good quick definition, but here's the problem, it's incomplete. It's like half true. See, it's, it's not that God is a just God who sometimes just like skips out on justice. And he says, you know what? You know, I'm not feeling like being just right now. I think I'll be loving. And so I'm just going to like pretend this didn't happen. How does that sound? 
That's not God. Now see, the, the reason that God is able to show mercy to us and not give us the punishment that we deserve is because it has been paid in full already by Jesus Christ for those who have put their faith in Him. Do you see it? God is always just, even in mercy. In fact, mercy, the picture that we have in the Bible of mercy, is one of the clearest pictures of the fact that God is just and must be just because His justice must be satisfied and was satisfied fully in Christ. That's exactly what we find in mercy. We don't receive the punishment we deserve because we devote our lives to Jesus who paid our sins in full so that God is both just and the justifier. Uh, The atonement has been made. We are reconciled with God. And God's justice, hear me, was most exalted in the most merciful place on earth that is the cross. So when you think about the cross... Glory in the mercy, but also glory in the justice of God on display, which was actually wrought on your behalf in Christ. If you're a non-Christian, let me just talk to you for a minute. Um, This is, I think, central to what it means to understanding how Christians are Christians and what you need most. Did you know that God is completely devoted to His justice? See, here's the problem. We've all failed to meet God's righteous standard. How do I know that? Because His Word tells us so. We failed to devote ourselves to loving God and others according to the standards that He set. Let me just ask you this. One day, you are going to come before God like Isaiah did. In an even more profound way, when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead. And what's what's your plea going to be on that day? What are you going to plea when you come before Jesus, when He comes to judge the living and the dead? Don't miss this. There are no excuses on that day. The only plea that you will have is Jesus in His blood. Only Jesus can make you right with God and save you from the punishment which is just for your sin. Only God can do that and only He can do that in Christ. And here's the good news. If you put your faith in Christ today... Trusting Him with your life, devoting yourself to Him, you can know that Jesus paid the debt for your sin in full at the cross to reconcile you to God. You don't have to fear God anymore when you come before Him. You can know that you have been saved by God. And not only that, it's not just that He takes away the the price that you owed Him in debt. We're told that even better that, He charges the very righteousness of Christ to your account. So don't leave without putting your faith in Christ today. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. But if you're a Christian, don't miss this. We see another thing for you in this text, and here it is. God always sends those He saves. Did you catch that? God always sends those He saves. In other words, this isn't just a verse for prophets. It is for the prophet Isaiah, but I think it's more than that. So notice that God always sends those He saves. We see that in verse 8. In verse 8. So again, Isaiah hears the voice of the Lord. And here's what it says. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And catch Isaiah's response. When Isaiah hears God calling for who will go, notice what happens. He's not silenced. He's sent. He's not destroyed. He's deployed. He goes out for God. And here's what he says. Here I am. Send me. You can send me. Now maybe when you read this, you're thinking to yourself, okay, well, who is the us that... Isaiah will go for? It's a good question. Uh, This is a plural of of consultation. Uh, And and what that means, I don't really want to get into, but I would say um, that I don't 
I'm not saying this is the Trinity, but it is interesting if you read the New Testament, what the New Testament says about this text. See, in the New Testament, uh, we find in John 12 that, that Jesus actually says, after he quotes these verses that are about, we're about to read, that, that actually this verse is a vision that Isaiah has of Jesus. It seems to say that in John 12. But not only that, we find that Acts 28-25 relates these same verses to the Holy Spirit. So, from the New Testament, they sort of view the, the triune God at work and display in this event that's happening. Now, I'm not saying again this is a trinity, I'm just saying it's interesting. But sure, sure this launches Isaiah's ministry as a prophet. We see that. And we'll see what kind of ministry that will be in a second. But remember this. This side of the cross, saving and sending always come together. Saving and sending always come together. In Matthew 28, you'll remember that Jesus reinforces this. When at the end of his uh, ministry on earth, after he's been raised from the dead, he ends the book by saying this, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Now just think about this for a second. Does this sound like the vision of an otherworldly kind of king? All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me? Here's what Jesus says. Now therefore what? Go. You see that? Authority, you're my disciples, you're my disciples, disciples, go. And what do they do? They make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded. Do you see that? There's, a, there's this understanding that if you're a disciple, that you're going and you're making disciples who will go. Now, what was one of the things that God, or that Jesus, told his disciples that he needs to teach others to observe? The fact that you make disciples who will go and make disciples, right? <laughs> so uh, that's one of the things that he's teaching them in the very moment that he teaches them this. We are a people who when we come to Christ, part of it means that we were going out to make more God-imagers as we teach them about Christ, teaching them to follow Him, teaching them to be devoted to Him. See, He sent His Son to save us, and now sends us to join Him in the mission of saving others. God saves and sends. Now, don't miss this. God always sends those He saves. Whether He is sending you next door, or the other side of the planet with Mark to go visit Indonesia. Like God is, is taking you, He is sending you to go and to make His Son known. God always has been descending God. The purpose of your life, like maybe you didn't come for this, but I, I think the Bible is clear. The purpose of your life and my life is to become more devoted to Jesus, more and more so, and to help others become more devoted to Jesus that God might be glorified to the ends of the earth ever increasingly so. See, God created you to make Him known all over the planet, beginning with where you are right now and where God's placed you. We are like the train of the robe of God pouring out from His throne into the, all the earth to make Him known. And do you remember the promise of King Jesus that He gives you and me as we share Christ? Does He say, and while you do this, I'm going to be way far away? No, He says, and while you do this, and lo, remember this, verse 20 of Matthew 28, I am with you always. My presence is with you as you go. The Holy One of Israel draws near to us as we go to make disciples. God is with us. But catch this. God's Word leads some to confession. And this is terrifying. It leads others to suppression. God's Word leads some to confession and others to suppression. Did you see that in verses 9-13? to 13? Hear the Holy King that saves those also hardens those who suppress the truth. The same one that saves those who confess hardens those 
who suppress the truth. Don't miss this. Isaiah receives one of the most difficult ministries ever. But I believe that God tells him these verses because he wants to prepare them for what God, prepare Isaiah for what God is actively doing. And this, listen just to what he signed up for. This is, this is uh, one of the scariest ministries uh, that, that you'll hear of. Here's what he says in Isaiah 6, beginning in verse 9. Look there with me. Verse 9 to 13, here's what he says. After he says, here am I, send me, it says, and he, or God said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people. And the land is desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. Just think about this. Here we find, you'll notice two things. First, that Isaiah's job is actually to prophesy, preach, proclaim the Word of God to this people not my people. So often when God speaks of Israel or Judah, He speaks of my people, but now it's this people. A people who are not living as His people. And God here says that He will preach to them until their hearts are dull and their ears for listening are heavy and their eyes are blind. In other words, God says the prophecies that He can expect the result are that God's people will respond to God's Word with hearts that grow harder and harder. Friends, be encouraged. Be encouraged that God calls us to be faithful in telling His Word, in sharing His Gospel. And success, if you judge it based on faithfulness to God, might be rejection of the message and more judgment. You ever thought about that? Sometimes when we share the Gospel and when people reject it, we think we failed. But God's Word never fails. It's actually a fearful thing for the person that rejects it. It's faithful for you. It's fearful for them. Be faithful. Not saying that you can't like do it in a way that's not helpful, that you can't get better at sharing the gospel with others, that you don't need to love them well. But God always promises to be present with His Word. And on the last day, you and me, we're going to be judged not based on success measured by human standards or based on our giftedness, or how how fine-tuned we are, we're going to be judged based on whether or not we were faithful with God has given us. But there's a second, more important word here, a scary one, that's this. Notice that God says He is sending Isaiah to harden their hearts through the speaking of God's Word. This is a judicial hardening of God's people. This is terrifying, but not utterly unique in the Bible. You'll remember that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh when he resisted his word. And later, you'll remember that when Jesus came, he quotes these very verses to the Jewish leaders. Jesus himself. And Jesus says that they were spiritually blind and proud. They resisted the very living word of God, the Messiah that Isaiah foresaw. They heard him preach and they rejected him. Have you ever thought about that? There are people who saw Jesus face to face and heard the gospel from the living gospel himself and rejected it. 
Just remember that when you're sharing the gospel. God is sovereign even over His Word. You might think that Jesus failed because they did not receive the Word, but Jesus explains that God's Word never fails. Sometimes the gospel hardens and repels sinners who refuse to repent. Please don't miss this. Just as Isaiah 55.11 says, God's Word never returns void. And it always succeeds in accomplishing what God intends. I love what Charles Spurgeon says here. He says, the same sun which melts wax hardens clay. And the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sins. Similarly, John Frame, writing of these verses, says this, the power of God's Word brings incredible blessings to you when you hear it in faith with the disposition to obey. But it will harden the heart that hears God's Word with indifference, resistance, and rebellion. In other words, God is already judging His people even before the nations come. Even before external enemies show up, God is doing an internal work that He will continue to do. He's searing the consciences and hardening their hearts through His Word being preached. And God's Word often, hear me, it often works in very imperceptible ways. Right? Did you know that? Sometimes God is at work in you when you don't even know it. You're hearing the Word of God and you think you are in control of the Word that's being received and yet the Word itself is shaping you in ways that you don't even notice. In fact, sometimes other people notice the way that you've been reshaped before you do. You ever seen that happen? People see changes in you through His Word before you've even noticed it. In the same way, sometimes when you hear the Word of God and you think that you can just reject it and you'll deal with it later And you know, obedience isn't the call for today, that's a call for another day. You don't recognize that actually you're not as in control as you think of God and His sovereign Word. It is actually hardening your heart towards Him. God never comes to you and says, hey, here's a word. That all right? If it's not, that's fine. You can deal with it later. God always says, I am the authority of authorities, the King of kings, high and lifted up. There's none like me. Do you ever respond with indifference to a word that comes from that throne? Never. Every word is from that throne. When you're looking at the Scripture, the Word of God. Don't be one of those who don't respond in obedience or pursue it in obedience and find your heart hardening. This morning, you may think nothing is happening, but God's at work in your heart. How do I know that? Because God's Word tells me so. God is right now drawing some of you to devotion to God as seen by confessing sins, a repenting of not loving God and loving others as you should. Some of you, He is working a work that later you will give yourself to vocational ministry. It could be that you have a friend that needs to hear Christ that He's already preparing you for. God's doing something in you. God is moving you towards change. Now, some here may think that they are unaffected, but God's Word, catch me, could be hardening your heart. Have you ever considered that you're not being moved by God's Word? And that it might not be an external problem. Uh, the, the speaker's not good enough. The lights and the fog machine aren't here. You haven't had the right tune on the, 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 you know, the guitar. Like it, it's, it's all these external problems. My wife and my husband, they're just, they just don't let me concentrate. And they bug me all the time. And if those external problems were just away, like I'd be good with God. And maybe in the midst of all of that, What you don't realize is the problems out here are just a foreshadowing of the greater problem in your heart that it's hard towards God and therefore it's hard towards others. 
Some here may think that they are unaffected by God's word and yet you are hardening and you don't even know it. Christian, let me just encourage you, don't approach God's word cavalierly thinking that you can listen without responding. That's non-Christian. Don't delay if you sense God calling you to righteousness where you've been unfaithful. When you do that, that's how you begin to sear your conscience. You harden it towards the things of God and His character. If you continue to disobey God knowingly, your conscience will become hard and you'll become less sensitive to the things of God. And if you're a non-Christian, let me just encourage you, don't delay coming to God today. God has called you to come to Him. Think about this. If you're a non-Christian, what if your heart only becomes harder towards God because you refuse to repent and believe? And as you think you're delaying it, every day you delay, it's actually making it harder for you to respond as God has called you to. Praise God, though, that not all hope is lost. You might think that all is over for Israel as they are burned and then burned again. And then they're left with nothing except, did you catch this on that last verse? A stump, which is the holy seed of Israel. A seed. All that's left is a seed. All the many people that God created for His people in Israel, now all that's left is a little lonely seed. And yet from that seed, God promises to build His kingdom. Notice the footnote of hope that Isaiah so typically attaches the end of judgment in verse 13, he says the holy seed is his stumps. In other words, Israel, though they'll, be, they'll be devastated by Assyria and then later by Judah, uh, Judah by Babylon. And though they're almost destroyed, God will glorify himself through a single holy seed, King Jesus, who would be fully devoted to God and his justice and through whom he would create a new people for himself. So just remember, the same holy king who saves those who confess their sins hardens those who suppress the truth. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we have come before you, Father, we have heard a terrifying word from you, Lord, about the nature of your word and the nature of our hearts. But God, we praise you this morning that you haven't just given us our sickness and our malady, but you've also given us the solution, which is only to be found in Christ. And so God, this morning, I pray for all of us. I pray uh, for those of us who love Jesus, who are devoted to Christ. Father, I pray that you would help us not to receive your word and to suppress it or to to run from it, Lord, but that you would help us to seek to obey it, that you would help us to become more and more devoted to you. None of us are perfect, but God, you are perfecting us. And Lord, we pray that our devotion to you would grow and grow. We also pray, Father, for those uh, this morning who do not know your son, Jesus, those who uh, cannot expect mercy on the day of justice. Lord, we pray for them. We pray that they would not leave this room without confessing their sins and turning for them and devoting their lives to Christ where the only mercy that is to be found is to be found fully in the one who has paid the price for our sins, the debt that we owe to you in full. Father, we pray that you would do this for the glory of your name. Lord, do all this, that your name might be exalted, that you might be exalted in justice. It is the great name of your son that we do pray and by the power of your spirit. Amen.